I'm interested in how curiosity can trap you behind that glass and really limit how you're looked at. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I was at a social gathering last night chatting with a friend who actually listens to the show, which is always thrilling, and I asked him if there were guests or conversations I hadn't yet had that he'd like to hear. He thought for a moment and chuckled and said, well, how about a show about the downsides of curiosity? You know, like what's wrong with happiness? That's not quite where I'm going, but at some level, I think he anticipated today's conversation, or at least some portion of what I expect we'll explore. Today, we return to considering that curiosity is politicized, often expressed in ways that dehumanize the people at whom it's directed, and sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, but almost inevitably with further reaching consequences than we might like to imagine. And then, what does it look like to push back against that tendency in ourselves, in our popular media, and even in academic journals? My guest, Amy Marvin, is a trans scholar writing on the politics of feminist humor and trans philosophy. She was a main organizer of the Trans Experience in Philosophy Conference, and here she's to talk with me about curiosity. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. So I noticed in many of your profiles online, you have trans with an asterisk next to it. And in your writing, you take time to define trans for the reader. So could we start there? Let's start with defining trans. Yeah. The asterisk configuration often comes up as a way to be more inclusive. So when I was co-organizing the Trans Experience in Philosophy Conference, um, also with Megan Burke and Fuldan Ibrahim Hakiaglu, uh, we use that formulation in order to emphasize that trans is often used as an umbrella that includes a lot of different types of gender variants uh, that people might might have. But personally, I use trans in sort of a way that acknowledges the historical idiosyncrasy of the word trans. So if you look at the history of trans people, as, as we might call them today, or as uh, a lot of mainstream political organizations will refer to trans people, there's actually a lot of different forms of gender variance, sometimes related to the surgery, sometimes not, across time and space. And I really take up trans as sort of this more complicated historical word that at the moment is used to group a lot of different people together politically but doesn't always totally hold up and might even homogenize lots of different people together. Yeah. So I sort of take it up as this very um, contingent word that is nonetheless useful. That's why I wanted to start here, actually, because I thought in that very sense right away that you're making clear, as you do in your writing, that this is a conversation about multiplicity and lots of individuals, not a monoculture, and that it is about very individualized experiences. And that part of what I hear your concerns about is that a lot of the way it gets talked about isn't in that way. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I think that there's a tendency, um, and this happens both through non-trans media production and non-trans cultural production about trans people, but also by trans people ourselves, 
uh, to sometimes not really reflect on the ways in which trans has taken different shapes and been called different things over time. So part of what I'm trying to push against is that homogenizing trend and saying, you know, I'm suggesting that, oh, we need to look at the different ways in which people have lived over time who we now subsume within this category. We need to really also look through, for example, historical archives of the ways in which trans people have, as we might refer to them now, have often been around in various different ways, while also not really homogenizing them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You've also said it's important not to ascribe public curiosity to any clear good for trans people. And you, you tell kind of a cautionary tale around the dangers of the forms that curiosity can take for trans people. Tell me more about that. So, and this is something that I've been interested with on the subject of care as well. So I did an essay on care ethics um, and how it can often sort of short circuit and people can actually be quite bad to each other through practices of care. Mm -hmm. And then I think my main interest with curiosity is what happens when not when you're the person having curiosity necessarily, but when this curiosity is constantly being directed towards you mm-hmm. in the context of academic or media production, especially under capitalism, right? So people are writing about trans people, they have a curiosity about them, and then they're making articles or they're they're writing media pieces about trans people. And then, you know, that falls under the mode of making money, making a journalism career, making an academic career. So what I'm interested in is when you become that object of curiosity, sort of like almost trapped behind the glass at a museum to constantly be looked at, uh, for people to be curious about you, not just in the 2010s, but also across several decades. I'm interested in how curiosity can sort of trap you behind that glass and really limit how you're looked at. Yeah. Well, and you have you have some language that you offer for that, right? As, you know, the curio, an object mm-hmm. that's alienated from its context, history and world, as you put it, and and through that removal kind of intensified as a subject of curiosity. It's really kind of objectification, I guess. And then curio is that the best way to say that? That yeah, process yeah. through which some someone becomes a curio, becomes that thing that we put in a glass cabinet. I think that's both compelling and chilling, and I assume that that's intentional on your part to get people to stop and think, whoa, that doesn't sound like it feels good. I'm coming from a place where I went to a lot of uh, museums growing up, also had an aunt, really, well, still do have a really cool aunt who used to own a um, a murder mystery bookshop, and she'd always have these little, like, interesting pieces around her apartment, right? And the, the point was to really sort of serve as this object of curiosity, right? So you have something interesting in your apartment, you have something interesting sitting in a museum, it's arranged so that it sort of draws you in with curiosity, but you might not really interact with it beyond that, that right. the specific organization of that encounter. So I was thinking about that feeling when, especially in the 2010s, where everyone's really excited about trans visibility, right? Because it, it can give trans people more representation, maybe more attention to the various needs that we have. But also, I've sensed 
a lot of ways in which that visibility has been uh, short-circuited. And this is also echoed uh, in, uh, there's a really wonderful volume of trans-critical writing called Trap Door that's really accessible and also talks about art and stuff like that. And I think a lot of us have been looking at this visibility um, in, a, in a critical way and this curiosity in a critical way where sometimes people might be curious about us as these objects of study but not really see us at the same time. Um, so that's where I, I described that, that experience of being turned into a curio. Right. And I just used the word curiotization to describe that process through which that happened. Yeah. And, and, I, and I specifically avoid, for example, calling it like curiositization or something like that, because I don't think curiosity always has to take that mode. I think it just sometimes sort of short circuits actually seeing the thing that the curiosity is driven towards. You know, I hadn't I hadn't really picked up on that, but I'm looking at my notes on this and I'm looking like, oh like curio is like it's not it's not the full curious, right? It's missing mm-hmm. something. So the curiotization is also missing some of that. Well you talked about care earlier or or, or Perry Zern's line about an empty gaze intent on seeing without any interest in understanding. So I think it's actually a fairly elegant thing that you've done there. You know, with the arrival of trains, planes, and automobiles, we've discovered that gender is way more complex than we thought it was. So right. there's this interesting sort of performance of curiosity and seeing trans people as this strange object of study that I'm sort of worried about it getting repetitive each decade. So Mm -hmm. we sort of have a moment of visibility, a moment of backlash, and I'm sort of worried about the ways in which a limited curiosity directed at trans people might just keep sort of repeating itself and really not leading to any sort of uh, long-term social amelioration. There's been so much in the in the press recently in a racial context of people saying, "Well, I don't see color," and I and I wondered if that was some of what you were talking about too. Is that as trans people become somewhat more familiar in the popular culture, is there also an inclination to to whitewash the culture or to monoculture it? Yeah, I think there's a tendency. Um, and I am definitely thinking of the literature on on gazes, right, and hegemonic mm-hmm. gazes mm-hmm. and the ways in which people might look at others uh, in a way that sort of gets distorted due to reasons of power or, or, or power differences of situation. I'm definitely thinking about how I think that often non-trans people will, will look at trans people in this sort of homogenizing way, it'll often bring in a lot of assumptions. So personally, for example, I'm a trans woman who who transitioned pretty early in life. And then I actually was not, uh, after transitioning, I was not out as trans for like about a decade. And then when this trans visibility moment happened, I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about a lot more trans people kind of being open about who they are. You know, maybe I'll try this out. Um, and I was really interested in the way in which once people started to know me as as trans rather than as, as not trans, um, this would sort of often short circuit our interactions or they'd huh. maybe make like a strange comment or something like that. Whereas before they would have just 
you know, interacted with me like they interact with um, other non-trans people. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in, in also this moment of how just different assumptions about being trans and living a trans life and ways in which people sort of reduce this to one thing uh, often short, circuit, short circuits even my personal interactions with people. So one of the things that you have written about is the sort of the importance of, of getting to know those individual stories, of coming forward with curiosity, genuine curiosity, and what you describe as anti-curiotizing. So how, if one wants to be curious and to do so in an actively anti-curiotizing way, what does that look like? I think, so one example I have is the song Walk on the Wild Side by Velvet Underground and how it's sort of, uh, it's sort of playing with this um, mode of the curio where the trans people in that song are sort of this sort of representing this this sort of seedy underground that velvet under that the velvet underground is going through and you don't really learn much about their lives beyond the song so the songs for example referencing um, Candy Darling and Hollywood Lawn who are real people um, who Lou Reed for example uh, knew personally hmm. So one thing I think often makes just a huge difference is if people who are curious about trans people or who want to write on trans people just know more trans people. Mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. a really difficult obstacle to deal with sometimes just because trans people are so spread out. Mm -hmm. A lot of us aren't out about being trans. Um, and I think that that when I run into people who are like constantly writing about trans people, maybe in a, in the context of journalism or the context of academic writing, often I think their writing or their curiosity gets short circuited just because they don't, they don't really know about trans people's lives right. or really have any specific trans people who they care about while they're writing uh, in a way that I think really limits their curiosity. So one thing that I often turn to for this is I, I recommend that people read just trans literature. So there's been a lot of um, novels and short stories and poems written by trans people that often describes our lives. And once again, you know, our lives is taken as, as things that differ a lot from trans person to trans person. But I think I often turn to trans literature as a really nice way in which um, even non-trans people can sort of look at our stories or our lives or our self-descriptions in a way that isn't really tethered to a, to such a limited um, academic or, or media way of presenting them. Mm, yeah. And is that a version of a loving perception you you talk about uh, i think this is actually a really nice language about arrogant perception versus loving perception which to me reads like a little bit of the kind of a spectrum of an empathic response so would a loving perception change the curio curiosization dynamic yeah i think that what i'm interested in there and this is language from uh marilyn fry who's a great feminist thinker. 
Um, and also um, that's taken up by Maria Lagonas, who's another really great feminist thinker. I'm interested in the ways in which people perceive trans people differently, mm-hmm. for example, through their curiosity based on um, actually knowing trans people, actually caring about trans people, who's mainly looking at trans lives, so trans people as a group of people who have been really overstudied, right? There's sort of a a fatigue at being constantly questioned Mm. and asked to explain yourself. Um, And I think often that that falls into arrogance in that they're not really trying to sort of get on our level to really know about us beyond sort of what what their curiosity wants to extract from us in the context of, you know, for example, publisher or parish or getting your news story on on the cover of a magazine or something like that. The other thing I get worried about is with loving perception is that there's a lot. So there's a whole group of people called chasers who often fetishize trans people. Mm -hmm. And even if they think that they're coming to us with a perception of love, that fetishization can also sort of short circuit their encounter with us. So um, sort of beyond loving perception, beyond uh, arrogant perception, I'm really interested in in the ability of people to not only be able to care about trans people and sort of where we're coming from and our lives as whole human beings, but also I think it's really useful when people self-reflect on the question of where they're situated With regards to trans people, um, I think it's really important when people uh, ask themselves, why am I interested in trans people? Why am I writing on trans people? And sort of what is my situation in that regard? Because I think we end up with a lot of people who, a lot of non-trans people who are making a, a career at this point from writing about trans people when they might not even know a single trans person or have a trans friend or really care if what they're doing is actually benefiting us in a way. So it becomes this sort of sort of limited relationship of extraction. Hmm. So I want to shift gears just a, a little bit because you mentioned that you came to curiosity through looking at humor. And I wonder how humor fits into this conversation for you. I was interviewed on an unreleased podcast by poet T.C. Tolbert. And T.C. asked me at the end of it, do you think that being trans is funny? And that really struck me in a lot of ways. Um, Mm, So I've been writing about uh, trans lives. I've been writing about humor. And I never had really bridged that so much. But During that, I sort of came to the conclusion that humor is sort of this interesting way to see the world that you're navigating, and not only in different ways and um, being able to experiment with with living a life that's often so unsanctioned, but also being able to sort of take a joy in your mistakes, um, Mm. to be able Mm -hmm. to laugh about it. Humor is often a way that we can sort of acknowledge when our when our curiosity makes mistakes or if we think of curiosity as a sort of as a emotion that drives us to inquiry and inquiry is something that's often linked to experimentation and failure i think that keeping a good humor about it is often a way in which we can maintain a strength or maintain a persistence in that light 
Nice. I think you're right. I I had a conversation with a group of comedians, and I they would they were saying very much the same thing that um, that humor was a way of uh, kind of grappling with stuff that doesn't make any kind of sense and sort of calling it out and just enjoying the fact that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense the way it is and and allowing that to just kind of wash over them, if you will. Uh, and I think um, returning to that the subject of what anti-curiatization might look like. I think what I'm often interested in as someone who has often been sort of trapped behind this glass cabinet is sort of um, using humor as this mode to engage with people who are trying to sort of reduce me. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. people might be writing about trans people in all these reductive ways, but I'm also a person who thinks and has a life and I think there's a way in which sort of uh, turning that that mirror back upon themselves in a humorous way can often sort of cut through that objectifying gaze in kind of interesting and unexpected ways. Talking with Amy, I couldn't help thinking of Arlie Adlington, a freelance audio producer living in London. His art helped open my eyes. What's the best way to avoid taking a piss? Just hold it in. Just don't drink anything. Dehydrate yourself. Just hold it in. I call it survival mode, but it doesn't always work. Stay home. Just don't go out. Just don't go out. The toilets at home are all gender neutral. Motorway service stations, the cinema, shopping centres, big city museums, straight nightclubs, airports, airports. The worst place is to have to use public toilets when you're trans. Or not even trans, just if you're a person whose gender confuses people. Those places, Those feel, places feel very, very unpredictable. unpredictable. I would say... I would say... I would say... Gender confuses people. I use the women's toilets just because it feels safer. Motorway service stations, the cinema, shopping centres, big city museums, straight nightclubs, airports. Airports are terrible. I feel like I've created a problem, like I'm a problem in that space. It's basically all the places where everybody sometimes ends up. Those places feel very unpredictable. Motorway service stations, cinema, shopping centres, big city museums, straight nightclubs, airports, the theatre, pubs, motorway service stations, cinema, restaurants, big city museums, coffee shops, straight nightclubs, train stations, airports, airports. Obviously, sometimes it's unavoidable. You have to go for a piss. So you learn things to make it safer. Okay, public toilet protocol. The goal is to get in and get out. Don't waste any time. Try to be invisible. Act like you're meant to be there. 
tried to send out vibes, vibes, vibes. Everything is normal and fine, vibes. Take, take off baseball cap before going in. If, if, if possible, bring a friend who's a woman with you. Other people, people will follow her lead. Try to be talking to her as you walk through the door. That way people will hear your voice before they see they see you. Don't 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 turn away. When people stare, don't turn away. Let them get their staring done, done, done. Don't turn away. So they can reach a decision quickly about whether they're gonna challenge you. If you can let them stare at you and act like you're not aware of anything weird. They're way more likely to decide you're allowed to stay. If someone isn't satisfied that they've understood your gender before you lock the door, sometimes they'll stand outside the cubicle and wait for you. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. You just have to power through, power through, power, power through. Now, carry on with whatever you were doing before you needed a piss. And try to piece back together the bit of yourself you just hammered away. Arlie put a human face on the implications of our ignorance, our bigotry, and our curiotizing. I asked Amy where she'd like to see Curiosity directed, and she pointed to Trans Thinking, Thinking Trans, a 2018 conference hosted by Andrea Pitts and Perry Zern at American University, a conference that she says succeeded in engaging curiosity in caring ways that yielded more complicated and nuanced areas of study. Along with Arjun Shankar, the same Perry Zern edited the forthcoming Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge. This conversation with Amy is part of a series of interviews with the book's contributing authors. Arjun and Perry call for creation of a new and critically curious pedagogy, one that includes practicing sincere reflexivity, turning the lens unblinkingly on ourselves, developing an empathic stance, creating and enjoying uncertainty rather than resolving or resisting it, and questioning socioculture norms and challenging structures and institutions of power. You can see why I'm excited to be having these conversations. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great programs here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can find all my previous shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose and number two, letter B, Curious. Special thanks to my guest, Amy Marvin, and to Arlie Addington for permission to excerpt his work. Links to more of Amy and Arlie on my website, along with a special section devoted to curiosity studies. Check it all out. Thanks to, of course, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit 
facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.